Welcome to Far Realms Radio. I'm Skyler. And I'm Justin. This is our podcast of many things. Where we give you eldritch advice to improve your Dungeons and Dragons games. Let's dive in. So today we're talking about the role of the DM because a lot of people see Dungeons and Dragons as a unique game because they have this special player who's running as a dungeon master. And so many times when you talk to someone about Dungeons and Dragons, one of their first questions or the first things they mention is, oh yeah, isn't someone like in that like a dungeon master or something? And they look at me with this expression on their face that tells me that their interpretation of dungeon master is not what I was just talking about. And usually it involves leather and the kind of, we get kind of awkward. Yeah, there's like usually that. a good follow-up joke in there somewhere. Right. Often at my expense. But I think that it's worth talking about the dungeon master from one particular lens, which is a lot of games have a GM, a lot of games have a storyteller, only one game, this game, has a dungeon master, and where that role comes from and why it's important, why it's special. So we're going to go over the history of that a little bit today. We're going to go over kind of what, on a most basic level, does the DM actually do, the what, and then we'll talk a little bit about the how and managing player experience uh, but one of the first things to understand the DM is to differentiate the role of the DM from the role of a player. Um, so when we look at players, their main responsibilities in the game kind of boils down to listening to the descriptions given, paying attention to what's going on, declaring their actions or taking those actions in the world, and then rolling the dice if the DM decides that it's necessary. It's often very reactive, right? Players are listening to what's going on, reacting to each other, reacting to the DM who's in charge, and then they respond. And it feels safe in a certain way, but it's different than the role of the DM who's also a player. The DM's also a player, right? They're, they're also everything else the players aren't doing, whether that be the deities in the world, the NPCs, the non-character forces, the weather, you know, anything like that. And it's important to also to remember that they're also a player, like Skylar just said, and that that really shapes how they're going to approach the game is as a player, what's important to them. And it really I think it has a strong impact on how the game feels. I think it it different DMs cater to different types of players. And there are some things that any DM can do that make the game, I think, better for everybody, but also things they can do to cater for what people are looking for so that the game's a success. Because I think that there's a lot to find in this game and it can teach us some things sometimes, but it's helpful to have somebody who guides us through that. And the DM is often that. Exactly. And because DMs can have those different styles due to their own preferences or their skill sets or who they're running the game for, that's one of the reasons it can be confusing as to like, what is a dungeon master? It sounds like such a loaded question to someone who plays the game because Really, a dungeon master is many things, and there's you're hard pressed to really label something as a true right or wrong answer, because it's really dependent on the players at that table and that that DM and what they want out of the game. Yeah, so rule zero applies, and I think this is one of the first and most important lessons for any DM or anything that when you're DMing you should always bear in mind. Rule zero is not that I'm in charge, I have power, I am the one who runs the table. It's remember that. 
it's a game, we're all around a table, what's the most fun thing that we can do? Rule zero. Stop for a moment. Can we make this better somehow? How can you have the most fun for the most players at the table? Exactly. That's a good way to, uh, to think to keep in mind. <laughs> so where did this start? Like, was it Gary Gygax in his basement with his kids, you know? And there's like, who's going to be Dungeon Master well, tonight? Or like, how did it, you know? Yes and no. <laughs> I mean, like, I, I don't know. You know, this wasn't, it was just sort of a, assumed that when I was a kid, it was a kind of sanctioned role, right? Somebody had the DMG, whoever bought it was the one who got to do that. When when you first discovered D anD D and you learned that there was a role of the the dungeon master, what was that like? Was there something that that was familiar to you? Was it a new concept for me? It was just like, oh, it's like the banker from Monopoly on steroids. Ah, it's you know, it's a good question. Like, I I, I think that I started with like AOL chat rooms and there wasn't a D anD D dungeon master, but mm-hmm. we were rolling dice kind of like you would in D anD D. I would later learn, and I was like thirteen, mm-hmm. and. Then when I was 14, I had a buddy who invited me to play Dungeons & Dragons with some other mutual friends that I played video games with, and he happened to have, and I guess he bought it, or he got it from a friend, or I don't know, maybe he stole it, I mean, it was the 80s, a Dungeon Master's Guide. So clearly he had read it. He didn't actually read it. But obviously he read it. Does anybody actually read it? And some other guy had got his parents for his allowance to get him a player's handbook. So clearly he was the guy that was going to teach us all what we could do. You know, like, are we going to be a fighter type in like a Final Fantasy game? Or are we going to be like a, a, a black mage type or whatever? <clears throat> but, you know, it was like, all right, that guy had the Dungeon Master's Guide. So, you know, the, the roles were determined based on the books that you got when you were young. I got the Monster Manual. So, I don't know, whatever. It's, I'm, I showed up. Hey, congratulations. Here's your, that's here's a, your I think that's a great points. observation, though, because when we were younger, I know that's why I turned to being a DM was it was because I was being a facilitator of the game. And a lot of the time the DM is given this responsibility of organizing the game, facilitating the game, and also kind of teaching the other players the game and any new players that come along. Yeah, it was kind of a mantle that would get passed, right? Like, okay, the DM as you know, they have, they run the game. And so when somebody else runs, you're like, oh, wow, that feels different. Right, like your friend's older brother would go off to college and suddenly you had a new DM and your buddy would do it. Or the only way you were going to play was if you DM'd and that was my situation. Um, so I DM'd by necessity and I found that I actually enjoyed it more than being a player. Uh, so uh, that's a really unique thing to Dungeons yeah. and Dragons and yeah. I love it. And that's why uh, in other systems, I also tend to see what's this, if the role of a game master is there, what is, what is it like? Is it different from D and D? Right. Because that was like my first uh, game mastering love, so to speak. Um, and it really mm. is interesting in that, when it first became like a normalized term, a dungeon master was not in the earliest Dungeons and Dragons material. In the earliest material, uh, it's referred to as a game master or a referee. There is no mention of dungeon master in any official material until the Blackmore supplement, uh, which came out in 74, 75. Uh, and then, you know, of course, once AD&D came out, you had the dungeon master's guide. Um, which directly kind of like labeled it for you. Well, so let's think about the timeline for this. I, this is interesting to me. All right, the game <clears throat> the game officially comes out in 1974, but there's like, oh, we were playing box. it in like 73, you know, and that means that, all right, imagine you're Gary Gygax or, and his friends and kids, and you're in Wisconsin, and it's winter again, 
and you're it's like since 71 you know so it, all right you know there's like yeah some crazy people out in the west coast doing some hippie stuff we're gonna play some war games in our basement you've probably doing that for a long time and now this thing starts to take off you know and uh all right it's 73 you're being published you know you might find it in bookstores you go into a i guess a bookstore a game store a hobby store yeah if you were lucky the, were the lucky. initial run in 74 is very small and it was you're hard pressed to find a, a copy most of the time. Right, right. And uh, so you pick up this thing, and it's like kind of a, a rule set for playing pretend games on the table. And then a year later, a year of that's the only game you have. Like you may, there aren't even really video games yet, right? It's the seventies. You don't you don't have like a an Atari even. You had some old war games like Chainmail that you're, the Dungeons and Dragons was based on, but right. not much else aside from board games. Yeah, board games, board games, and maybe you'd go to a pinball arcade. And, uh, all right, so now there's a game that you can play that you can change it up as much as you want. You know, you can just reconfigure it again, play it again, and play it again, and play it again, and it's going to be different every single time. And somebody's got to run that game, apparently. That's part of the referee, I guess. And then the, another supplement comes out, there's a new one. It's the only new one. You know, it's like you go to yeah. Blockbuster, if you remember what that yeah. is. You know, and like, oh, wow, what came in today? You know, like, uh, what can I rent? Th- oh, that's a new rental. I think that's a big difference from the war games of the time is that you could play D&D every week and it would be different every week when war games really came out of a tradition of reenacting old historical battles now it wasn't always the case you had war games that did you know other things however that was where that really came from and it was a big spirit to war games was that reenactment aspect maybe the outcome was slightly different but there was always that like nod to history in those war games yeah i mean and there's a lot of this kind of reenactment too about the civil war in the u.s right like what the reenactors, what did, what happened at the Battle of Gettysburg, Battle of Antietam? It's interesting just to think about the logistics. What was interesting about the war game stuff, I guess, looking back, is the the level of fidelity they tried to achieve. <clears throat> I think it, it's just, I don't know, I that they were able to translate it to a fantasy setting. They were like, wow, you know, we have all these muskets, we have all these troops and cannons and things that we're going to do it like medieval style what if there was also i mean I, of course they did i guess of course they mm-hmm. did because king arthur stories and all the lord of the well, rings that's exactly so what it was dave arneson and his buddies who were playing chainmail got bored with doing all these large-scale battles all the time so they started getting creative and being like okay we're and they started scaling down to like okay a knight in their units and we're going to kill this unit over here with this particular unit and it, it was kind of the objectives you see in modern day strategy games they were creating these objectives for themselves um, like kill this infantry unit with the artillery unit was one of their win conditions. And they eventually came down and down and down until they were the knights themselves. And you got these knights of the round table type of tales where they were going into dungeons under castles. Um, and that's kind of where that evolved to. I would have killed to be a fly in the on the wall in the room when they decided that they were going to call, I guess, Arneson, whoever was running it. No, you're not the game master, the referee, or whatever. This game, we're like, no, you're the dungeon master. The dungeon master. To be anointed at that time, you're like, yeah, actually, I'm the dungeon master. I mean, that's it's pretty cool. Kudos on you, man. Well, it makes sense because the word game, it's an adaptation of the word game master. The game master's already existed from other games, whether that be like diplomacy or other war games that required one. Like the oldest war game we know of, Kriegspiel, has one. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. But. That's the funny thing is it's really taking the word game master and making it more specific to D&D because it's such a unique thing. And this term apparently, uh, based on my research that I did, it first gained traction in fanzines. 
um, on the West Coast. Uh, like alarms and excursions. It's alarms, thank you very much. Alarms. Alarms. It's, it's a Shakespearean bullshit word. Good. I'm glad I have an experienced thespian here to to pronounce it for me. Because bard, get it right. It's bard. bard. He's a bard. That's you know. I'm terrible at pronouncing things. If you haven't noticed, that's why you have a bard. Obviously. That's why I have a bard to help me out. It's it's super necessary. So anyway. <laughs> <laughs> When we're looking at where this comes from, though, it goes much farther back than 1974 or, you know, slightly after when he actually gave the name Dungeon Master. When we're looking at, like, Game Masters, one of the first examples you see is that game Kriegspiel. It is a old Prussian war game. It was invented... Kriegspiel, in- German, right? Like I'm going to have Skylar say all the German words right now. Oh, no, no. So... So it was... Uh, Kriegspiel in- is war game, literally war yeah, game. It literally means war game. It was invented in Prussia, which is now Germany, for those confused. Prussia is not Russia. They're different. One has a P. Um, it, it was invented around 1811, and it was invented by... What's this guy's name? George Leopold von Reiswitz. Yes, and he was a retired general kind of dude, and... He developed this game, eventually showed it to the king, and it kind of caught on with the high upper class people of the day, especially ex-military guys. They loved this. They were very Prussian. Yeah, and it was further developed by his son, who has quite a name. Georg Heinrich Rudolf Johann von Reiswitz. That's his name. That's that's, that's epic six fucking name. names. Yeah, so the dude had a lot of names. He also had some good ideas. I'm impressed. <laughs> um, his son... We'll call him Reiswish Jr. Uh, for simplicity. Uh, he's the one who kind of had the idea to introduce an umpire. So let's explain the game. It is two teams of players and one umpire, and you're gathered around a map. And this map represents an actual battlefield. And they would originally, this was a table with sand on it, and you could sculpt the sand to be whatever train you wanted. Um, but when he was going to George. Leopold von Reiswitz was going to show this to the king. Reiswitz. Von Reiswitz. When he's going to show this to the king, he decided, you know, maybe I don't want to present the king with a table of sand. And he did more work creating a mini model fake terrain for this his. This is like Warhammer. This literally, is like... it looks it. The, it looked kind of like a modern Warhammer board, to be honest. Just a little bit, probably a little bit more coarse this and so rough around the edges. Very German. It's it amazing. It, it's me. amazing. And when you when you learn about this game. And you know Warhammer, it's very kind of rewarding because you feel like you're coming full circle. Yeah. You're like, oh my god, this makes so much sense. Um, but anyway, you you know, each team has a army, and they're represented with these like little painted blocks. Um, people still play this game today. You can buy these blocks. It's like you know, think Risk, right? It's probably a game that also uses little blocks for cavalry and soldiers and all of that. And you would command your troops by writing orders on paper. You would give them to the umpire. He would read the orders, move all the the troops around. He would interpret the combat by rolling a D6. They had a series of D6s they used to resolve a lot of things. And they would either consult a table or do some math. Um, And then the umpire would let people know what happens according to those rules. He was the arbitrator. He was a referee. Um, so he had to be impartial. And also of the time, he needed to be an experienced officer. They wanted people with military experience because they could be like, I know what would happen. I've seen it. It's context. I have context. I've seen this. This is what this looks like. This is what this means on this chart. Exactly. And the funny thing, though, is this game got very popular. And these umpires <laughs> kind of became, amazing. they got into high demand because 
the rules to this game were so freaking ridiculously complicated. They still are. Uh, it, most people were like, they had no chance of learning these rules. They, it was ridiculous. And, and people back then were just like, no, I'm not going to learn these rules. I'm a nobleman. I can't be bothered with this. I don't have to learn the rules. I am royalty, and so you will referee for me. Exactly. So these guys actually kind of became little celebrities in their own right, and they were highly sought after uh, because it, when you would play this game, you would usually play it against you know another nobleman, and it was kind of a social thing. An intellectual duel. Exactly. It was an intellectual duel. That's a great way of putting it. And the funny thing about these guys, though, is... They really saw themselves more as a curator of the experience over time than a referee. And there's instances and in so cool. variations of this game. I think there's one called like Craigspiel Free or something like that. And it was an offshoot of the game where people said, hey, these rules are really limiting. I want the referee or the umpire to have more power to arbitrate what's going on because they know to resolve these things. And so it was more of a rules light approach. Uh, that allowed for more agency to the umpire. That's interesting. The rules tournament yeah. version, like your organized play. Exactly. And then your free play, which is whatever you think yeah. is more interesting. And my favorite thing is these guys fudge die rolls all the time. <laughs> because course. they would. They were like, no, my military experience, I, that wouldn't happen. That's ridiculous. No. Or maybe they didn't want to upset a certain noble. Or huh. maybe it was a shitty die roll and it would ruin the narrative of what he, they were trying to do. It would have been such a great evening if the yeah. story ended, but the die... Oh, God, exactly. And so they kind of saw themselves as kind of curating the experience there. And you can even find a couple like interviews with these guys where they talk about this. And anyway... This is where you really kind of see this this role evolve from not just being a referee, but to a, a curator of the experience of sorts. And that kept evolving over time until we eventually got to, you know, Dungeons and Dragons. People still play Kriegspiel, which is pretty awesome. Um, I think it's amazing that this game has survived this long. But It's a great game, apparently. I'm curious about how it translated into... What we now call d and I mean, I guess it's just sort of, you know, you play different kind of games, you make up... If you're living in Wisconsin in the 70s, you make up games in long winter time because what else are you going to do? Totally. I would. Right. And uh, and anyway, this one, yeah, it, it took off, you know, it sort of made it so that this this idea of a dungeon master curated a different kind of experience. But I think that there's some magic that happened in the translation of this is not just a simulation of what's real which is one whole category of war game. I'm going to, yeah. given I have so many troops and such and such circumstance, I need to make sure that X and Y occur. And then how do you fight your opponent on that? To the next leap of, like, I mean, all of those things are, are plausible. I can think of all of them. I know what they might look like. I know there are men. I know there are trucks. I know there are planes. I, I don't know that there are dragons. I don't know that there are dungeons. I think there are. I've seen a few old ones, you know? But... Now we're definitely in the realm of fantasy, of, of maybe even escapist imagination. Beyond just imagination for a practical purpose, now we're into imagination for a creative purpose at the, at the core of it. And that, that interests me because it allows us to look at what this intersection of what our creativity is with each other. And the DM is the one who has to be able to look at those kinds of things, to be able to say, this player wants this, this player wants that. How do we get them to both get that because maybe they can exactly and that's why a, a dm is so much more than a rules arbiter it's like you just said they're they're kind of a game designer right they're looking at how can i set up this game how can i set up the session 
within this game system, right? D&D is really more of a game system or a framework. Gary Gygax referred to that as that kind of concept himself many times. Uh, if you look at the intro to the AD&D Dungeon Masters guide, you'll find him talking about that, how he it's really a framework. However, he also, at the same paragraph later, says, you need to use these rules or your framework won't work. So, you know, do whatever you in, want, but do what I do. It, but what I do is the right way. So, <laughs> but that's kind of how Gary wrote. You know, he was all over the place. Um, when we look at the, D, the DM, they're so much more than just a rules arbiter. They are a game designer, right? That's one of them. We kind of have to design that game that we're going to play. They are a player themselves in the game, right? At the end of the day, the DM is a person sitting down at a table to play a game with people they hopefully like. And so their fun matters too. Everyone should have fun at the game, including the DM. Right? Sometimes you don't know until the game's over and you ask your players if they had fun and then you know if you had fun. But it, your fun's still important. It is. I mean, and there's risk involved for everybody. This is why I always talk about the container as a DM. Why I talk about it's how useful it is to set a space where everybody can come and be a little vulnerable together because then the kind of fun that we have is more memorable, I think. Totally. Totally. That, that goes for us running the game, too. Exactly. And uh, when you're running the game, it's important to remember the rules are really just a tool for you to use as needed, right? If you don't have to refer to the rules, that's that's great. It's ideal. That's what we want. Like in the the afterward, in the AD&D DMG, I know I'm referring to this a lot, but it's the first time we really had this Dungeon Master's Guide. And so it's an interesting... It's canonical. Thing to, yeah, it's canonical. It's interesting to look back and see what the what the spirit of it was. And the first line is, it is the spirit of the game, not the letter of the rules, which is important. At the end, after you get through this entire book of rules, they tell you, hey, by the way, don't worry about these rules. Right. It's a very thick book, too, especially for its time. That's rule zero, right? Pay attention to the table and do the thing that's the most fun at that moment. Always. That's the, it's, it's the rule of cool, I guess you could call rule it, Rule of too. cool, yeah. I think that's a, a, the modern phrase for that most of the time. Uh, the other thing that the DM does is narrate or uh, be an information broker of sorts in terms of managing the flow of information to your players, describing the world, making it come alive a little bit. This is one that's usually pretty obvious that a DM has to do this. Otherwise, nothing's happening most of the time. It'd be kind of an awkward game if they didn't. <laughs> I mean, yes. Uh, and then, of course, we talked about earlier how the DM's also responsible for the entire game world all of those non-PC forces. I think that one of the things that I like about being DM is that I get to decide who's in charge of what. And the default starts with me. Don't get me wrong. There's like a Skylar's in charge piece, but mostly it's that I can then say, okay, you now get to decide this. What does this room look like? Tell us. You can spread that agency around. Exactly. I get to share the, the story creating with everybody and I can do it in a way that makes it easy and accessible and safe to explore what that looks like. And uh, that that's great. You know, like, yeah, we, we get to decide what the tone is, but I think that um, that's part of the magic, I think, is that all of us get to decide it together. I, I, I completely agree. It really fills into something that I feel strongly is that DMs are not primarily a storyteller. You're not coming down and sitting at a table to tell a story. Like Skylar just said, you're going to collaboratively build a story together uh, and that's what's going to happen. We've all played at a table with a DM who's more intent on telling their story than they are running a game. And it can really suck the fun out of it because not only do you feel like you're being railroaded, you feel like you have no agency regardless and it doesn't really matter. I kind of feel like 
in some ways, the role of a DM is the role of the person who is hanging around at family in the middle of we're all bored and there's nothing to do again tonight somewhere in America. And this is not an accurate history, by the way. And said, so-and-so wants to play card games and this and that wants to play board games and that other person wants to run around in circles and play imagination and swing swords. And we would all should all do something together because it's like five or six o'clock in the evening and we're bored. How about we play this game, imaginary game called Dungeons and Dragons? And then they kind of stitched together a bunch of different other mini games onto it. And there's like a dice game and you have like a paper accounting game and you have an imagination pretend game. Yeah, it's totally a mix of a lot of games that came before it. Right. So and it has that mass appeal. And the DM is the one who looks at what all the different parts of the game are and then caters them to who showed up to play that night right and then that's where we kind of get into how do we manage that player experience and i know you have a concept that you like in this realm of things that you label as simulation versus narrative yeah i mean it's not an original thought i think that one of the things that a lot of dms talk about is i mean now we're, we're we're very I guess sort of reconciliatory today in today's world. I'm really grateful for that. There's a lot of debate in old days of the '90s about what makes role play, and this is back to the debate that I often harp on of R O L L versus R O L E, and that's just really just a a way to talk about what people are in the game for, right? Different player types. What are the motivations? Why do we want to play the game? How do we share it with each other? Two of the broad categorizations for the kinds of games you run. Are are you doing a narrative game or are you doing a simulation game? And this is very similar to like kinds of adventures. When you think about are you doing a site-based adventure or are you doing an event-based adventure? And how it affects play is just basically what triggers the next series of roles that the players have to make. What's the next set of interactions that they have to hit? You know, so a simulation game is player-driven. They it's sandboxy. They explore around and they get a, a good sense of what the bounds are based upon the rules that are applied to them, some mixture of which comes from the book, some mixture of which comes from you. And the narrative one has a different set of rules, some mixture of which comes from the book, some mixture of which comes from the given constraints of the world in which they live and what what story each is trying to chase, right? They're both, I guess, in a sense, exploratory. They're both have some experiment quality, I think right? it's like a sliding scale between the two also. Yeah, like, definitely. It's not all or one, I mean, I think that it's boring if it's all or one. And I agree. Like, can you imagine like just simulation, like no narrative ascribed to it? Go play Sim Earth from back in the day, and I'll tell you the game is boring. I, I actually simulators I do enjoy are like evolution simulators. There's no narrative, but it still can be fun because you kind of ascribe the narrative yourself. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's explicit in D and D, right? Right, you, and yeah, you have to do it more yourself in that. But D and D gives you tools to do that too, because it really, at the end of the day, right, it, it's kind of a simulation system. It's up to you, the players, to get the narrative from it, you know, or maybe, you know, the narrative sometimes is a product of that simulation, like, oh, this happened and this fits into our narrative this way. I think that looking at how you can get players to engage with the simulation to create that narrative and have power in doing that is is super key. And I think a big part of doing that is is getting your players to engage rather than explaining when it comes to information. Yeah, I mean this is one of the this is one of the challenges of the DM. It's easy to fall into the trap of I need to make my players have a good time. It's easy to fall into the trap of I'm responsible for everybody's fun. And to some degree the DM is, but 
to some degree, everybody at the table is. Everybody's a player. Everybody shows up and is responsible to have a good time and to share a good time with everybody else. That's how the game is built. Also, the DM is the, the role that has the responsibility of looking at everybody else's fun and comparing and making sure that it doesn't tip too much this way or too much that way, paying attention to that. And I think that that's one of the the core things that we need tools around, or we often can share tools around. Like session zeros are a good example of it. Um, we've talked, I think, a little bit elsewhere about lines and veils. You know, what are the things that we want or don't want in a in a, in a game? Uh, and also, how do we? I mean, th- this this boils down to like the tone of the game. Is this going to be more of like a fighty style game for more power gamers? Players might ask. Or is it going to be more of like a, I have noble intrigue and my, we should all write up characters with 50 pages of st- whatever. And the DM would be like, you know what, you can, it's my job to say, you can write up your story and I'll engage with you at that level. And then you can build a character for killing waves of orcs at a time. And I will, I promise I will throw them or other things comparable at you. And I think setting those expectations is why is very successful and very important. That's a big part of your job as a DM is to manage people's expectations so that, you know, you can make sure they're having fun. And that's why strategies like session zeros are so handy because it actually gives you a space and a time to specifically address those things. And when you set up a campaign, uh, session zero is a great way to make sure you're all on the same page. And if you check our episode on session zeros, you'll know, you'll know exactly what we're talking about. Uh, so I, I, I've pontificated a little bit, and I'm feeling parched, and I think I would like to stop out for a brew someplace. Well, you know, there's conveniently a tavern right here, yes. right? Like right yes. here. This is my well, favorite part of all go of in. our discussions. I, we should stop with the tavern. Let's do it. Welcome to Tavern Talk, where we talk about a brew that we enjoy for any arbitrary and mostly delicious reason. We usually just pathetically try to tie that brew to Dungeons and Dragons. This one's a pretty clear tie. This this time we have Golden Drock. Golden Drock. A very Golden. excellent Belgian, lovely, triple. rich, intense triple. It has like a white bottle and a a black label with a golden dragon on it. Of course. Because obviously the gold the gold dragon is one of the highest CRs in D&D and he's really a badass, uh, although underused I think. Pathfinder has the best famous one that I can think of. All the all the cool dragons my, in D&D are my, red dragons. My favorite is Dragonlance. Fizzban. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's a gold dragon in disguise. But well, actually, I want no, a stat no, block. I, I guess he's technically Bahamut. I mean, he, yeah, he's he was Bahamut, right? Yeah. So, you know, th- that's a whole other category. Yeah, right? like okay. Bahamut. Touche. And if there's ever a Bahamut brew, then I'm drinking that brew. Yeah, yeah, I'll buy it. But anyway, Golden Drac, I like it because it's, it's as far as Belgians go, it's not easy. It's not in, in everywhere. Like, I, I, I went to Bevmo to get it, which means West Coast, obviously. But on the East Coast, it's like, go find your nearest boozy superstore, I guess. Whatever that looks like. And uh, And it is, it's a kick in the face a little bit. It's a great Belgian. It's got a tiny bit more hoppiness to it uh, than a lot of other Belgians, which is just kind of nice. It, mm. it doesn't clash in any way. Great beer. Love it. Can't go wrong. I guess my American is showing that I like hops. <laughs> <laughs> but the uh, the cool thing about the Golden the golden Dragon is it the legend, supposedly, there's a church where this near where this is brewed, and there's a giant golden dragon on it. 
legend goes that it like sailed around on Viking ships back in the day. And there's like all these like stories attached to it. But supposedly the brewmaster of this was inspired to create it when he was gazing upon the golden dragon. I, I can only imagine that the Vikings had some of the best drunken, raucous times. Right, they're like, let's make a dragon out of gold. We will make a dragon out of gold and put it on a boat and then sail around well. And we'll look really cool. <laughs> like, all right. Yeah, right. You guys. All right. Speaking of looking cool, we should talk about how you can look cool. We have a promo for the next, for the first eight weeks, for the first eight episodes of first. our show. And the promo is, if you share our show, if you share it with a friend on Instagram, on Twitter. On whatever, you could send us proof of you sharing the show to farrealmsradio at gmail.com. However you want to let us know. You can add us on Twitter at farrealmsradio. You can add us on Instagram. We'll enter you into a raffle with everybody else who has done so for the first eight weeks. And if you win, then you get the Deadly Trio, the core rule books. Core rule books. Monster Manual, DMG, and Player's Handbook, which make an excellent gift. I know some of you have them, and you're like, bro, I already have these books. However, you can never have too many PHPs It's at a, a table. great way to pressure someone into playing Dungeons & Dragons with you. Uh, what, <laughs> if, so, they're on, if they're on the fence, give them the books. What took me... What sucked Maybe even me, just the Monster Manual that do was, it. It was actually... It was exactly that. The Monster <laughs> Manual is, is very creative. That was it for me. I mean, uh, me too. I, I think that they make excellent gifts and are always useful to have at the table. So, so share the show. Get some sweet books. We also will really appreciate it. Thank you for listening. (laughs) Until next time. Until next time. We should go back to the show. Let's go back to the show. Back to the show. So every DM is different, and every single one has a style or a kind of way about what it is they do. What, like, could you, if I was going to put this on a video game, and it was like Mario Kart or Smash, maybe, or something, you know, and I'm like looking at my different characters, and I can see their strengths and weaknesses. It's an RPG. No, 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 no. no. What's what's your stat block? What's your DM stat block? DM stat block. So, yeah, we've talked a lot about what the GM does. We haven't really talked about how the GM does those things. That's really how most of us define GMs and defines our experience, right? Because a lot of GMs do a lot of similar things. It's it's how they do those things that really gives them those differences. So for me, you know, if we're looking at our GM commandments or truths or creeds or philosophies or, you know, what would be on our GM stat block, which is the way I like to think about it, yeah. you know? So legendary attributes... Uh, for me, my first one would be the rules or tools. And what that means is I, as a GM, uh, the rules are a tool for me to make sure that the game runs well. I'm not a slave to the rules. I will change them if I need to. Um, and it's important for my players to know that, right? Like the DM creeds and truths and commandments are the kind of things you might actually share with your players at some point. So they kind of know what game they're getting into. You know, maybe it's something you talk about at session zero, or maybe it's just something like you do for fun because you're bored. And you just kind of want to write them down. So for me, that's my first one. The rules are tools. Um, I'm not a slave to the rules. That's a good one. I, I think that would be like a multi-attack. And uh, it would be like multi-attack. Justin has a plus eight when using multiple rule sets. He gets to make mul- two lookups per round. I do sometimes. <laughs> it's the problem using a lot of homebrew. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's really useful. I, I think... So I, I, there are there are a few times 
you asked this of me before and I didn't have anything on the fly I thought of, but it makes perfect sense. And I think where I am now is that my, my first one would be probably what I call, this would be a legendary action, theater of the mind. And it would be that we can all come together and experience what I believe is true about stories in that we have some narrative. We walk into a theater and it's a dark theater or it's a movie theater or it's a home theater or it's a table and we come with our expectations about who the characters are, and we find one that we like. And we follow that character's struggles, and we go through our deals with that character, and we take our feelings back at the end of the night. And we feel a little bit different, and probably because we overcame some things in that. And that's all in our head and in our heart. We watch it on a live performance. We see it on a movie, you know, like, go watch Endgame. God, it made me cry so many times. But it can happen anywhere that we decide to tell stories with each other. So the tools of that story look like a bunch of different things, which are combat and puzzles and events and role play and all kinds of things. But that theater of the mind, that that vulnerability to come in and have that experience, that journey to some place you weren't at the start of the night, that's that's my legendary action. I like that. I, I, I think it's annoying how theater of the mind is always just relegated to this term we use to describe combat when really theater of the mind is a lot of most of the game. It's all theater of the mind. It's all it's theater, all of, the theater of the mind. You Even there, the miniatures on the table is you, theater of the you mind. Describe all te- of it's theater of the you mind. Just, yeah, they're all abstract representations and you're describing what your character Pick looks like. Tools. Theater of the mind. Exactly. That's a great uh, That's a great one. So I learned that from that. the LARPers. I'm not a LARPer, but I respect them. They, they taught me that. I give them that they're for sure. They're dedicated folks. They are. Because I just sit at a table and roll dice. That's, I'm good. Um, <laughs> What's the second one for you? All right, stat block for, continues. Stat block continues. So for me, my second one um, is in my players I trust. For me, I have to be able to trust the players at my table. And I'm going to do so intrinsically unless I have a reason not to. I'm going to trust my players are being honest on their dice rolls. I'm going to trust they're honestly tracking their HP. I'm trusting they're crossing off their spell slots. I'm not going to like be suspicious of my players. I'm going, until they give me a reason to assume they're cheating or I need to keep an eye on them, I'm going to trust them inherently. Um, and this is like a big part. I need to be able to do this. It's a big part of for how I run a game. It lets me run larger tables. It lets me run more co- complex combats because I can do things like give initiative to a player and have them run it. I can give NPCs to a player and have them run it. Um, I'm not one of those DMs who goes farther and has like a monster wrangler and will actually let a certain player who they trust control mobs for them and just run them optimally. I've done that. I've done that. I it's mean, interesting. I, it work. It could work. I just... I want to have something to do. So special action <laughs> in my players. I trust Justin empowers his party, the players to ex- to get a bonus on exploring character options. <laughs> bonus to insight. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> I like that. Uh, just be honest about it. I think that my second one, the, the other part about it that I, I, that I like to have people show up is that it's a game. And I, I mean that, because a game for me is is fun, but part of the fun is the challenge of it. And I think that's why games like Pandemic are fun or other co-op games, some, I mean, competitive games. There's the thrill. It's maybe just a dopamine hit that we get out of challenge and success. But just to reflect for a moment, if we are playing a collaborative game where it's a safe space, we're projecting value number one ourselves onto a character overcoming some ordeals and taking it back and we're also seeking challenge 
that means that something is going to push our buttons a little bit sometimes. And we don't necessarily know when that's going to be. We don't know if it's going to be that we just roll ones all night long, or if it's that somebody's playing a character that we find a little bit offensive or maybe on the line, but is, you know, like on the line and it's a party. So you have to be polite or, you know, like, and that might be like somebody with a, uh, like I'm playing Bob three. That's my character's name. He succeeds Bob two who died from the last trap in the prior room. Apparently Bob is the most common dungeon dragons name. According to a recent poll I saw. (laughs) I believe it. I mean, there are Bob's that die out there. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> anyway but you know so like the, the second part of it I think is that leaning into that piece about if we're going to show up together and we're going to tell a story together and we're go- or play a game or solve any part of it it's a contract between all the people who showed up like hey alright we're playing this and if it it might be a relatively safe game like shoots and ladders or Chinese checkers and it might be a friend breaking game like Catan which I love paranoia paranoia right uh, but what's nice about Dungeons and Dragons is that we get to tune it to ourselves. And the person who gets to facilitate that conversation is the, D- the DM. So uh, as that perspective, I say, I think I like that challenge as the second part of the game. Nice. For me... What's the uh, third one for you? My third one, my third one would be uh, I will maintain verisimilitude, meaning that the campaign or the world that I am running is going to have a high degree of internal consistency um, and cause and effect, and it's going to follow some system of logic. It may be absolutely ridiculous, like my current pirate game, which is an ode to One Piece. So there are devil fruit homebrew rules I've created. And however, they're consistent, right? My players know that if they eat a devil fruit and they are submerged in water past their knees, they will be immediately paralyzed. They also know they're going to get some really sweet abilities and powers from those devil fruit on the flip side and i'm consistent with that it's it's something that my players they know this they this they understand this is how this works in this world and so they can use that they can have some intellectual mastery over this game world and that's a big part of various militude is that you know it works like this here and you can rely on that and make actions and decisions based on that. So this is like a lair action. Yeah, it would be like a lair action. Lair action, verisimilitude, players get advantage on understanding the bounds of the world. Precisely. <laughs> That's a good one. That's like an elder brain lair action. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Although those are creepy. So I think my, the the third one for me, you know, so I, I, this tells you about how I balance. The first thing I, I said is, Come and be vulnerable and let's all enjoy some stories together. And the second thing I said is also you're going to be challenged, of course. You know, Bard College. Blame Bard College. Always blame Bard College. (laughs) The third thing I would say is that the value I have at the end of the game is that really it's a third interpretation of the game, which is that it's for fun. Everybody shows up for fun. So know what everybody's fun is. Pay attention to what they're fun. This is, this is I guess, legendary resistance against non-fun, you know? (laughs) This is something like that. Like... Skylar gets advantages against DM games that are not that are not that are not fun. When Skylar is not having fun, he can choose to have fun instead. We have fun now. Sorry, sorry. You failed having, your fun save, but you're like, no, I choose to succeed. We're instead. gonna have fun right now, whatever it takes. And that's the most important part of the game, I think, is really how because that's the thing that people remember. There's a lot. The real world is real, right? This is a game that has escapist fantasy, and every game or movie does. This is not something to shy away from. What's nice about this one? 
and the DM has the, oppor- the the clearest hand into this is that this game, this escapist fantasy, this brief pause with other humans together in the same space, we get to decide what it is. And that's the magic of the game. And that's both the tactical parts, the R-O-L-L, and the ephemeral parts, the R-O-L-E. That's, I think, that maybe the DM, not to put pressure on, oh, you're going to be a DM, so you have some hallowed, sacred, whatever. But also, you know, somebody has to have an eye on the big picture. That's it. It's like you get to be the pitcher, I guess, in baseball. That's just your Someone's got to do it. Yeah. Got to throw a pitch to play the game. I think that covers it. I think that's a good covering of the role of a DM. What is a DM? Why is a DM? How is a DM? And we could do an entire episode on on how to DM and different <laughs> DM philosophies yeah. and whatnot. But I think it's important to understand on a base level like what a DM is and what actions and responsibilities they have within the game. I hope that the idea... I mean, it's all made up anyway, right? So that should make it fine for people to try DMing. And maybe some of this will be useful for people who are on the fence. Give it a try. DMing is a great experience. You may try it and decide it's not for you, but you will immediately have more appreciation for the game as a whole, more appreciation for the Dungeon Masters you've had in the past and you will have in the future, and it'll make you a better player to see the game from a different perspective from the other side of the table. Until next time. Have a good one. Well, that was way better. See, I told you, when we're less sober, we're way better.